Okay, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Matthew 21. We'll look at the first 11 verses. The text is also printed there in the bulletin. Uh, This morning we're looking at a part of the gospel that we often consider actually on Palm Sunday. Uh, It's commonly called the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus came into Jerusalem, uh, his final time coming to Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. Uh, He's coming in as as a king comes to his city in victory. And this uh, is why it's called the triumphal entry. It marks the beginning of the week of the biggest annual festival of the Jewish people, the Feast of the Passover, uh, when the lambs were sacrificed in commemoration of the Exodus, when God had delivered his people from Egyptian oppression. And so this time uh, was special and unique. This time, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, uh, would be slain. So this Passover week would end with the crucifixion of Jesus. He'd been talking about the significance of this moment. Everything in his life was leading up to this point. And now, finally, here he is, the king coming to save his people. He's a strange kind of king, saying strange things, coming in a strange way, bringing a strange salvation with him. It's all wonderful, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, by your word and by your spirit, we pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. And a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Well, Jesus has been saying some strange things, things that his followers are having a hard time understanding, hard time accepting. He's been telling people that he... The king came to serve, came to give his life as a ransom, uh, saying that he, the king, is going to Jerusalem actually to die and then be raised on the third day. And now the gospel is building to a climax. Here he comes at this climax of his earthly ministry. He comes to Jerusalem. It's the city of kings, city of the kings of old, right? He approaches from the east, from the Mount of Olives. 
where one has this majestic view, view of the splendor of the city, uh, especially the Temple Mount, which to the Jewish people is the heart, the glory, the kingdoms of the earth. So the crowd has heard great things about Jesus, even if they haven't understood all his teachings. He's got a huge crowd of people following him and acclaiming him. The atmosphere in the city was electric with anticipation of his arrival, so much that his enemies became really worried. Even Jesus himself calls attention to the momentousness of this occasion by arranging for his transportation here with the donkey and the colt um, uh, in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. He's identifying himself as the long-awaited Lord who has come to save his people. He gives his disciples these strange instructions, these prophetic instructions, really, about finding and securing the donkey and her colt. He speaks confidently about what is going to happen with this donkey and with the colt. And what he says comes to pass. Think about that. The one who's been talking about coming to Jerusalem to die. What he says comes to pass. Uh, However strangely he comes, the people roll out the red carpet for him in a way fit for a victorious king, and a conquering king, spreading out their cloaks on his animals and on his path and greeting him with these palm branches, which are symbolic of victory, and crying out, Hosanna. Right? They're crying out, Hosanna. That's a, it's a desperate cry that means, oh, save us. Uh, I think in our minds, we generally think Hosanna means something like, praise you. Um, but it really means, oh, save us. Save us. It's a cry of desperation. So they're calling out to Jesus. And they're using Psalm 118, which was our Old uh, Testament reading that Joe Hamilton read. And using that, really Psalm 118 says, oh, Yahweh, please save us. They're praying to, to Yahweh. So they're, they're addressing to Jesus this prayer to God for salvation. Uh, they're certainly speaking better than they knew. This crowd would not have equated Jesus with God. They don't when, when asked who this is. They say he's a prophet. They say many great things about him, but they, what, they wouldn't say that he's God, <clears throat> even though they're praying to him as God using Psalm 118. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, this is why Jesus is murdered later, because he equated himself with God. In a few, t- uh, few days' time, the people of this very city would call for his blood. The same people who are calling out, save us, will call out, crucify him. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, right? Give us the violent revolutionary instead of this man. His blood be on us and on our children. When they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, they thought they were getting a certain kind of king. And then over the course of the week, they were dismayed to learn otherwise, and they changed their tune. They thought they were getting themselves a king like all the other kings. They supposed, actually this is what Luke says in his gospel, Luke chapter 19, he says, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They had a certain conception of a king and the kingdom of God, which Matthew in his gospel is very concerned to give us actually God's conception of his king and his kingdom. Uh, So the people here, the crowds, They spoke truth when they quoted the scriptures. They didn't know what they were saying, right? They had the language right, but they had misconceptions of the meaning of what they were saying. They they wanted a king to advance their agenda. 
They wanted a king to do what they thought was good and what was right and what was necessary and what was relevant. They wanted a king really just like all the other kings in this world, only better and stronger, the strongest. That's what they wanted. Uh, it had been a problem for the people of Israel for over a thousand years. In 1 Samuel 8, you get this, the elders of Israel, after this nightmarish time uh, with the judges and oppression uh, from foreign peoples and, and uh, uh, the sinfulness of God's people, you know, the this, this cyclical nature of uh, judges. After so long, 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel told the prophet Samuel that they wanted a king like all the other nations. They make it explicit. We need a king to fix this mess. We need a king like all the other nations have. That's what will fix our mess. So God said they wanted this actually because they rejected him as their king. Uh, you can go read that for, for Samuel 8. <clears throat> um, so the prophet Samuel warned the people of Israel that what they were asking for was really... They want an oppressive strong man who ruled through, through coercive power and, for, and through violence, who would just take and take until, you know, they realized too late that they'd actually chosen slavery for themselves. And wanting a king like all the other nations, that's, they're choosing slavery for themselves. They didn't care. They insisted, no, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may go and fight our battles, right? So... There was no difference between the people of Israel and the other nations. They saw their problems the same way everybody else did. And so their solution to the problems that they saw were the same as everybody else's. We need someone to advance our interests over and against the interests of others who threaten us. Right? We need someone to advance our interests if only we had a strong prince to lead us to victory in war. National security, right? So this is not obviously just ancient Israel. This is in the writings of Christian nationalists today. Uh, so <clears throat> Israel got their king. They got Saul. They got a big man, someone that other world leaders would fear to mess with or who would make other leaders respect Israel by force. And Saul turned out, just as God said, to be capricious, a violent tyrant who did not, in fact, deliver on their hopes and expectations. So God gave them a king of his own. After they got the kind of king that they wanted, king like everybody else in the world had, God gave them a king of his own after his own heart. A king none of them would have expected or chosen. Someone who did not fit their categories for a strong world leader. Just a, just a shepherd. Shepherd boy. A foolish choice if you want to be just like all the other nations. right? Um, but God prospered David. And he prospered his people through David to show the people the folly of their desire to be like all the nations. To, to teach them the goodness of his alternative kingdom, which is unlike anything in this world. Right? So it's a difficult lesson to learn. They never really learned it. In fact, they ended up completely misinterpreting God's work and could only you know, sort of look back on who David was. Could only conceive of David as a prime example of exactly the kind of king they, were, they had always been looking for. God gave them a different kind of king when he gave them David, but they said, look, it's the king we always wanted. He did for us exactly what we wanted. They were blinded by their expectations. And they didn't recognize the strange spiritual qualities of the kind of king that God provided. 
And by Jesus' time, they longed for another David. They were wrong about what that meant. But they longed for another David, a son of David, a greater son of David, to come and deliver them from the Romans by force to reestablish what they saw as the golden age of their nation when they were a nation like other nations, only better and stronger. Right? <clears throat> they didn't realize that David's kingship had always been a divine critique of their vision of kingship. So they didn't realize that the prophecies of the son of David coming to establish the kingdom of heaven would be completely out of alignment with their hopes and expectations, their worldly expectations. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, they think, now here is someone who can gather crowds. Here's someone who's popular. He can gather army-sized crowds. And he can provision his armies with just a bit of bread and fish. And he's got the moral high ground to inspire his followers. And he can heal the wounded or even raise the dead with a touch. Who could stand before an army with Jesus at the head of it? If Jesus were a king like other kings, if his kingdom were just like all the uh, other nations, not even the terrible power of Rome could stand before him. That's true. Domestically, He would bring great prosperity on the foreign front. He could conquer all our enemies. As a political leader, he could actually fix the world, couldn't he? Hosanna, save us, Lord. Save us by doing what we think would fix the world. We can imagine it. Do it. Save us by fulfilling our political agendas, our ideas of what is relevant. Save us from earthly injustices and poverty. Save us from all our suffering from anything that makes life unpleasant. Save us by promoting the interests of your people over against all those bad people in those other nations. Save us in really impressive ways that show others that you are obviously the great king over a great nation. But here he comes uh, riding a humble donkey instead of a war horse. And all along the way, his life has been faithfully a divine critique of our visions of kingship and power and salvation. He came to be our king, all right. He did. But that means nothing like what we think it means. He came to save us, but his salvation is quite unlike what you will find promised by world leaders. If you think Jesus would make a great world leader, like the President of the United States that he could uh, really fix the world if he were in an office like that, then you should ask yourself if you really understand Jesus. In fact, I think that's the kind of thing this crowd in Jerusalem thinks. And they're, they're all about to be severely disappointed, so disappointed that they will turn and call for his crucifixion. They are happy to employ the violent methods of Roman oppression to be just like all the nations, to be rid of this king that they reject. That's what it means when the people clamor for Jesus to be a king like all the other kings. It means they actually reject God. They actually reject God's kingship, his vision for a king. What kind of king do you want Jesus to be? Uh, Would you ask him to do the very same kind of things that your unbelieving friends and neighbors would ask him to do? 
If you think Jesus should be the kind of king who saves you by doing what you think would fix the world, who saves you by fulfilling your political agendas, your ideas of what is relevant, who saves you from earthly injustice and poverty and discomfort and suffering, who saves you by promoting your interests over against the interests of others, who saves you in a really impressive way so it becomes obvious to others that they should follow this king. In fact, you're rejecting Jesus and and rejecting his true kingship for a vision of kingship and salvation just like everybody else has, right? So here are some diagnostic questions for you. What do you think is really wrong with the world? You should probably think about that. What do you think is really wrong with the world? What do you think will really fix what's wrong with the world? Are these the same things that non-Christians think? Do you have the same basic hopes and expectations as people who openly reject Jesus? How about we let Jesus tell us who he is and what he came to do and what his salvation really is about? How about we let Jesus tell us what it means when we cry out to him, Hosanna? Because we don't know what it means. We don't know what it means to call out to him, save us. But he can tell us what it really means. Uh, like those people in Jerusalem on that day, we're probably speaking better than we know when we cry that out. We might be getting the language right, but misconceiving the meaning. We don't know what a good king should be or do. We don't know what we need saving from. We don't need uh, know what God's goodness will actually look like until we see it revealed in Jesus, in who he actually is and what he actually came to do. And really, it's only after his crucifixion and resurrection that we realize it. So John, in his account here, of the triumphal entry, um, he says that the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Right? So Jesus came riding on a donkey. We don't know what that means. But he came because he's the king who comes to save us from our conceptions of kingship and from our, from our wrong conceptions of salvation. He came to save us from those things. There is something wrong with our approach to politics. There's something wrong with our approach to power. There's something wrong with our vision of what's wrong with the world. There's something wrong with our ideas of what will fix what's wrong with the world. Jesus came to save us from all those things that are so wrong with us. He came to show us that his authority is expressed not in coercive power, not in violent power, but in humble service and self-sacrificial love. That's the expression of his authority, his kingship. He came to show us that he is king of heaven and earth, even if all the nations of this world, every single one, without exception, rise up against him and crucify him. He still is king of heaven and earth. He came to establish a kingdom that is not about warring nations seeking to dominate in their rivalry, but a kingdom where people from every nation are welcome in peace. He came to make peace not by shedding the blood of others, which is the way of peace of the nations of this world, He came to make peace by his own blood, by the blood of his cross. 
He came to bring cosmic restoration and peace, peace with God in ways that are truly inconceivable to us, things that can never be achieved through our visions of political power. Wouldn't even try to achieve through visions of political power. Sinners don't want him to be king. Sinners don't want his salvation because there's something wrong with sinners. There really is. We don't want true glory to mean humility like we see it in Jesus. We don't want true royalty to mean service like we see it in Jesus. We don't want true holiness to mean forgiving sinners and fellowshipping with sinners and loving our enemies like we see it in Jesus. We don't want those things. We don't want to be told that we need forgiveness more than we'll ever know. We don't want a radical transformation in the core of our being that is beyond our ability to achieve. We just want to be, you know, sort of picked up, brushed off, polished up a bit, and put back on the high shelf, exalted and comfortable. Untouchable. I'll welcome someone as king if they play by my rules and give me what I want, right? Uh, But that's actually rejecting Jesus. That's rejecting who he is. No one in Jerusalem truly welcomed Jesus for who he really is. But that didn't stop him from coming and doing what he came to do. Couldn't stop him. It really was the triumphal entry, in spite of all the misconceptions, because the king had come, the Savior had come to do his work. It was impossible to stop him because he truly is the king. All the misunderstanding of all the people wouldn't stop him. All their ill intentions and hostility wouldn't stop him. Nothing they could muster in their hearts. None of their schemes, none of their words, none of their actions could stop him. None of their sanctimonious compliance or flattery could stop him. None of their faltering weakness could stop him. None of their willful willful ignorance could stop him. None of their fearful efforts to control could stop him. None of their blatant treason could stop him. There is nothing in heaven or on earth, whether conceivable or inconceivable, that could deter the king from doing what he had come to do. He came to be rejected, utterly and thoroughly rejected, so that he might truly welcome us in God's eternal kingdom. We don't really understand what it means to welcome Jesus, but through Jesus Christ, God has welcomed us. Nevertheless. Jesus has reconciled us to the one who is at the heart of reality, to the triune God of love that we've all rejected in our sin, the one who we've refused to know, we've refused to understand, we've refused to relate to. Jesus has shined the light of God into the darkness of our hearts and our minds. And that is a wonderfully good thing for him to have done. His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. They are beyond us. And that's really good news for people like us. His goodness is beyond our conceiving, which is good news. He overthrows all our expectations of him, which is good for us. He's the kind of king even the angels are bewildered by, right? And these are pure beings with capacities for understanding far beyond our own, who live in the very presence of a holy God. They find Jesus full of stunning surprises. We need to be saved from our presuppositions about him. And that's exactly the kind of savior this king is. Our greatest need is for a king who will take care of us better than we hoped or imagined. Better than we even knew we needed. 
better than we could ever possibly take care of ourselves, better than we deserve. That's the kind of king we need. That's the kind of king we have in Jesus. He came on his own terms. He came humbly riding on his beast of burden. He went to his cross to bear our burdens. He came to seek us and to save us with a salvation that we couldn't even recognize. We sought to establish our own ideas of what would fix the world, but all our efforts to reject his gracious rule have been overruled and overthrown and even forgiven. Now it is ours to learn the surprising goodness of his ways and to wrestle with why he doesn't just fix our lives how we think he should and to learn how good, how, how it is good for him to be the king that he is, even to speak better than we know every time we bless him and praise his name. Amen. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you are king of heaven and earth. Whether or not we acknowledge it or truly submit our lives to you. Make yourself known to us as you really are by your spirit. Open our eyes to recognize you. Open our hearts to receive you as the good king that you are. You laid down your life for us. We want to lay down our resistance and, and ask that you would conquer us by your love so that we can know true peace with God and with each other in your name. Save us from our own faulty understanding of you. Save us from our suspicion of you. Save us from ourselves. Save us for a relationship with God where we know you even as we are known by you. We pray this in your name. Amen.